So what I'm going to be doing today is giving a summary that Matthew himself gives. So we're going to be finishing the last verses of Matthew chapter 7, in which Matthew gives a summary as to the crowd's reaction to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the wider crowd, I think, would have been made up maybe of a few disciples outside of the twelve, but most likely it would have been comprised of people who were certainly interested in Christ's ministry, but were not true believers. And their assessment of Jesus' teaching was that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes of Israel with which they were familiar. Now today, their assessment and the amazement of this crowd is going to teach us two things. Number one, that standing amazed is not sufficient. And this should really quench the desire for many in Christendom who always want another miracle and to be amazed in order for there to be a true work of God. I'm going to show you today that amazement in and of itself is not a precursor to saving faith. But number two, the authority that we're going to see today, Jesus demonstrating even in his teaching, is a demonstration that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited prophet that Moses had foretold of, that is the mediator of the new covenant. And Jesus' authority also shows us that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah from Daniel chapter 7 who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So as we pick it up here in verses 28 through 29, remember, Matthew is giving us a summary of how the crowd understood the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has just taught. So here's what it says. It says, Matthew 7, 28 through 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, I'm going to pull at my pointer. I want you to first notice what you see in bold, the when. The when is actually two terms in Greek. It's kai agoneto, which would be rendered best, and it happened when. Now, the only reason I labor that, and it happened when, is that phrase occurs five times in the book of Matthew. Once here in Matthew 7, 28, and then later on throughout the book of Matthew. And it serves as a summary at the end of each major discourse. So you'll see it here, Matthew 7, 28. If you're a note taker, jot down Matthew 11, 1, Matthew 13, 53, Matthew 19, 1, and Matthew 26, 1. Each time, it happens after a major discourse. So pat yourself on the back. Congratulations. You have just made it through the first of five major discourses in the book of Matthew. Now, notice here in verse 28, it says that Jesus, after he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed. Again, I think that the crowds here were probably a much larger group than the disciples. And they're being amazed, I want you to know, in no way suggests that they were believers. In fact, I'm going to show you later on that this idea of amazement is never depicted by Matthew as a precursor to saving faith. In fact, I'm going to be showing you that when Jesus teaches in his hometown synagogue, they are amazed, and yet they don't have saving faith. In fact, so much so that they want to kill him. So what I'm going to show you is that amazement in and of itself is not sufficient. We have to believe, not just stand amazed. Now, the term amazed that you see there in the red, ekplaso, means to be amazed or astonished 
to the point of being overwhelmed. As if you have no category to put what you're seeing or hearing in. Uh, an analogy that I thought of, and for, forgive me if it's a Hollywood analogy, but many of you in here perhaps have seen the movie years ago, A Few Good Men. You remember there's a scene where Jack Nicholson plays an army colonel. And he's on the stand and he says real loudly and brashly, you can't handle the truth. That is a good way of summarizing what it means to be amazed. The unbelieving crowd could not handle the revelation that was coming from Jesus Christ. They couldn't handle it. In fact, three of the four usage of Ekpleso in the book of Matthew is of a wider crowd that never believes in Jesus Christ. And so even though they're amazed, it doesn't mean that they come to saving faith. Now, the reason I think this is important for the wider church to hear is there are many groups in the charismatic circles, those who believe in a second blessing. Remember, there are some Christians who think, well, all Christians may have the Spirit, but the second blessing proponents say that some Christians have the fullness of the Spirit. And what they believe is if we would just, the rest of us would just stop, we would just stop being a bunch of dunderheads and get the fullness of the Spirit, then miracles would happen, and then certainly there would be revival, and then certainly we would have revival not just here in America but around the world. Dear ones, the idea is that if people would be amazed at miracles, then you would have mass conversion. We learn today that that's not true. In fact, those who are often most amazed are the least believing. In fact, Jesus himself will say when you get to Matthew twelve thirty nine, he'll say, A wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it except for what? The sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? The resurrection. Jonah was dead and buried for all intents and purposes in the body of the whale for three days. So the Messiah. Now, how do you and I know about the resurrection, that sign? Well, we can't see it and we don't experience it yet. It's the resurrection of Christ. We know it through the word of God. So what Jesus is saying, just as he says elsewhere in Luke 16, if someone won't believe in the scriptures, neither will they believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Dear ones, being amazed isn't that important. What's important is trusting and believing in the words of Christ. That's what we find today. Now, one more thing I want to mention here in this text. Notice here the reason for the amazement of the unbelieving crowds. We have an explanatory for. Anytime you see a for, you should ask, what's it there for? Well, he says, this is why they were amazed. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Remember, the scribes in the time of Jesus, they would have prided themselves on memorizing the words and the traditions of other scribes and rabbis that had gone before. So their teaching would sound something like this. Such and such a rabbi said such and such. This, this elder, this scribe said this. And they would just go round and round talking about halakha. Halakha is the Hebrew phrase mean, means the way to walk. And so all they would do is cite other scholars from earlier years. Jesus comes on the scene, and five times in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, truly, I say to you. The term truly, remember, is our term, amen. Now, normally, remember, in the culture of the day, if a rabbi taught, 
The student after the rabbi taught would say, Amen, this is truly a word of God. But five times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says before he teaches, Amen. He prefaces his words with Amen. Why? Because he needs no man to authenticate that his words are in fact the very words of God. Because he is in fact God incarnate. Now, another example of Jesus' phrases that I think shows this great authority is what you see on the screen. Again, this happens five times in Matthew where Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, generally speaking, I think this phrase is very important because it's Jesus linking himself to the prophet that Moses had foretold who would be not just a prophet, but the mediator of the new covenant. So, for example, when Jesus says, you have heard it said from the old covenant, but I, the new prophet that Moses had foretold, the mediator of the new covenant, I say to you. I think that's the significance of that. So you're going to see this phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, if you studied it with us, in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Matthew 5, 27 through 28, Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Matthew 5, 33 through 34, and Matthew 5, 38 through 39. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is he correcting the Old Testament? Was the Old Testament deficient? No. In fact, as God, he was the author ultimately of the Old Covenant. So I believe Jesus is doing three things with the Old Testament scriptures. Number one, he is dealing with the Israelites' misinterpretation of the Old Testament. You see that here in Matthew 5, 38 through 39, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them your other as well. So what's the point there? Remember Lex Talionis, that is the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Israelites misinterpreted that to mean that if they were ever insulted, they had to exact revenge. But in fact, the law was designed to restrain the amount of retaliation that would be unleashed upon someone who hurt you. So for example, if someone hurts your hand, you can't lop off their leg. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Why? Because in the ancient Near, Near East, grudges grew. And people wanted to get their pound of flesh, so to speak. So Jesus was correcting the misinterpretation of the law. He also corrected, number two, the misapplication of the law. And he showed that ultimately God sees the heart, not merely our external actions. And you see that here in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And so I think a lot of Israelites misapplied that saying, well, I've never actually killed anybody. I'm good to go before God. Jesus saying, hey, even if you have hatred in your heart, you're a murderer before God. That's the idea. They misapplied it. Now, the third thing that he does, he does change at times the standard of the old covenant, and even makes it stricter, showing the direction in which it was pointing. And I think we see that in Matthew 5, 33 to 34, where he says, again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, 
don't make an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool. The idea is that he knows the weakness of people. Don't even make an oath. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no if you're going to be a follower of mine. Dear ones, in this way, Jesus was demonstrating that he was, in fact, the one who had authority as the prophet that Moses had foretold. Remember, in some sense, Jesus recapitulates even the life of Moses. Think about, didn't Moses go through an exodus? Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is on an exodus. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hmm. Well, didn't Moses go through a form of baptism according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10? Huh, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Well, where did Moses go with the Israelites? Well, he went into the wilderness for 40 years. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds. He's the faithful son Israel never was. Moses brought the people to the mountain. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus brings the people to the sermon on the mount. And five times he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's the new lawgiver. He's the one who's the mediator of the new covenant. He's this long-awaited prophet that Moses had foretold of in Deuteronomy 18, 15. What's the point? We should listen to him. Not just stand amazed, but really listen understand and believe his word. I think that that's one of the implications that we can gather from this text. Now, let me talk a little bit about this idea of amazed. Again, this is just a summary, so we can dig into it. Let's kind of summarize the book of Matthew, the term for amazed that we saw in Matthew 7, 28. Ekpleso occurs four times in the book of Matthew. It happens here in Matthew 7, 28. It happens again in Matthew 13, 54, Matthew 19, 25, and again in Matthew 22, 33. Now, what's very interesting in each case, the idea of being amazed does not necessarily mean that someone has saving faith. In fact, quite to the contrary. Let me give you an example. Let's go through these. We already looked at Matthew 7, 28. Let's look at Matthew 13, 54. Here, Jesus is in Nazareth. It says he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so they were astonished. Stop there. That term astonished you see in red is the same term, amazed, from Matthew 7, 28. It's ekpleso, same term. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Dear ones, what I'm going to show you is that even his hometown synagogue, who seemed to be amazed at both the teaching and the miraculous power of Christ, they didn't believe. And again, over and over we see that amazement of miracles in and of itself does not equate to saving faith. Let me show you another one. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 19.24. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew 19.24. Remember, I can't fit everything on the screen. I think in heaven our PowerPoint is going to be much better. <laughs> but it fit everything on the screen. Matthew 19, 24, please turn your Bibles there. Now, as you're turning there, remember, this is where Jesus is confronting the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, Jesus asks him if he's, in fact, obeyed the law. And the man is self-deceived into thinking that he has. Well, Jesus, sensing this, says, well, there's one thing you lack. Go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me. 
Now, the irony, of course, is the man can't do that because he doesn't simply own possessions. They own him. But second, he doesn't recognize the one who's asking him to follow him is, in fact, the Messiah. And so notice here then in Matthew 19, 24, Jesus has just said, oh, how hard it is for the wealthy man to enter into the kingdom. And then in verse 24, he says, and again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard some years ago, some Armenians, I think, engage in special pleading where they will claim that the eye of the needle in this passage is a reference to a part of a gate in the city wall of an ancient Near East city. I don't think that that's what Jesus is referring to at all. Why? Because he's talking about something impossible. So if you have always understood the eye of the needle to be that little small eye in that little small needle that you have to thread the thread through, that's exactly what Jesus has in mind. Because the idea is it certainly is impossible for the camel to go through that. That's the point of the analogy. And so the idea then is what Jesus is saying is that it is impossible for a wealthy person to be saved. The disciples are catching on to this. And notice what happens. Matthew 19, 25. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished, amazed. Ekplaso and said, then who can be saved? Again, the disciples did not have the theological categories to put the teaching in. They were completely overwhelmed with it. They couldn't handle the truth. And in fact, Jesus will go on, if you still have your Bibles open in Matthew 19, 26, it says, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What astonished the disciples was the level of depravity that Jesus said humankind had. The depravity of mankind that the Bible teaches is so profound that no human being can come to saving faith unless they are regenerated by the Spirit. And this is absolutely astonishing to the disciples. They don't have the categories for it yet. Now, the last time ekplaso is used, it's found in Matthew twenty-two thirty-three, 33. And I'm going to read it, and then I'll explain why the crowds, again, unbelieving, probably, were astonished. It says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, ekplaso, they're amazed. Here, the context is Jesus is dealing with those rascals, the Sadducees. Remember, why are they sad? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. I'm sorry, that's the last time I'll put that joke out there. I think I've worn that one out. They're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. So Jesus does something very profound. He cites from Exodus 3, 6, where God says to Moses at the burning bush, I am. Remember the famous I am statement? He's revealing himself. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Jesus concludes from that that there must be an afterlife. Why? Because God isn't the God of three dead guys. He's the God of three living. What Jesus appeals to, which is so astonishing to the crowd, from Exodus 3, 6, what they, what they see no connection to the idea of resurrection, they're astonished because Jesus connects the necessity of the afterlife and the resurrection to the very character of God. 
God cannot be the mere God of three dead men. Therefore, you have to have a resurrection and an afterlife. He's the God of the living. And they're astonished. They can't handle the truth. There's no category for it. To find such wisdom coming from a passage proving the resurrection that they've never even considered. Brothers and sisters, again and again, Jesus' miraculous deeds and his teaching amaze people. But what matters is not simply being amazed, but again, trusting in the words that he gives. I think that that's a primary lesson that we learn here today. Now, I have three application points for you this morning. I believe the first two go hand in hand. Number one, the astonishing power of God seen by men doesn't necessarily bring about conversion. It doesn't necessarily do that. And so I think that that should quench the desire by many to always say, if we would just see more miracles, then people would certainly believe. Er, It's not what the scriptures show. And I'll prove that to you. Number two, we must not merely remain astonished. We must believe the word. Being amazed is not sufficient We have to trust in the words of Christ. Those go hand in hand. Finally, the third one is Jesus' teaching demonstrated he was the prophet foretold by Moses and the long-awaited Messiah. Let's begin with the first one. Really, the first two go hand in hand. And that is the one thing I want us to learn here from this text in Matthew is, again, that amazement of the crowds does not equate to saving faith. Remember the term amazed, ekplesso, I showed you where it comes four other times or four times total in the book of Matthew. We see it again, as I showed you earlier in Matthew 13, 54. Let me read this text again, and I'll start applying it. Matthew 13, 54, where is Jesus? Well, he's in his hometown, that's Nazareth. It says, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers. Dear ones, if anyone should know who Jesus is, it should be his hometown. Do you remember what Nazareth means? The root of Nazareth is probably Netzer, which means branch. And it's a playoff of Isaiah 11. The expectation is one day the branch of David would come. He is the Messiah. So the people lived in, in Nazareth, or it's really like Branchville. And so ironically, Jesus, who is the branch, grows up in Branchville. And if anyone should recognize that he is the Messiah, it should be them. It should be them. In fact, notice they were astonished. They're amazed, just like the unbelieving crowds were, at what? What were they astonished with? His wisdom and teaching and his miraculous powers. What powers? What miracles? Jesus did many miracles proving that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Think about this. In Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, It predicted that in the messianic age, the deaf would hear, the blind would see, and the lame would leap like a deer. Jesus does all of those miracles. He gives sight to the blind. He unstops the, or I should say, unstops the ears of those who are hard of hearing. Deaf, that's what I wanted to say. I don't know if he had anything for uh, problems with memory. (laughs) That's the one thing I need. But he also healed those who were lame so they could leap like a deer. So in all those miracles, what is he demonstrating? He's the Messiah. And yet the people who lived in Messiah, Branchville, they didn't see it. And so there's great irony. Notice here, it says they were astonished. And you would think, man, these people have seen something. 
they're amazed at the miracles. Certainly, they're going to come to faith. Uh, nope, doesn't happen. Notice three verses later, Matthew 13, 57 through 58. I'll just stop right verse 57 here in the beginning. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. The term offense there, scandalizo, they were scandalized. They saw the profundity of the teaching and the miraculous deeds. And did they just jump to faith in him and trust in everything that he says? No, they were offended with him. They were offended. It says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. This ironic proverbial statement is really a rich one. The idea is that the people that should have known who he was, his hometown of Nazareth, they treated him far worse than did an unbelieving, or excuse me, a pagan, unregenerate at the time, I guess, centurion who comes to faith, is regenerated in Matthew chapter 8. And Jesus with him marvels that he's not seen such faith in all of Israel. The hometown synagogue didn't get it like the Roman centurion did. Now, also, I want you to see at the very last line here, it says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. You know, traditionally, I think many charismatics look at that and they believe that the reason why Jesus couldn't do miracles is because it takes the faith of humanity, in their view, to unlock the miracles of God. So if you don't have faith, God won't do the miracles. Well, let me disprove that, that that's what Matthew is saying. When Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, according to Colossians chapter 1, created all things out of nothing, where was humanity to have faith to enable him to do the miraculous creation? Well, we didn't exist yet. So I think in some sense, people almost have a Santa Claus theology where if you believe, then Santa is real. And if you don't believe, well, then it's really not real. No, that's not what Matthew's point is. It's a very profound point. The point is that Jesus would not do miracles where there was unbelief because in doing so, he would just heap up upon the people more culpability. They didn't have the category. They couldn't handle the truth as it was. They saw plenty of miracles. They couldn't handle it. And so he just started pounding them with more miracles. All he's going to do is heap culpability upon them. In fact, let me prove that. The more miracles, the more you are culpable. The more you've seen, the more that's required. Jesus says as much in Matthew eleven twenty through 21. Notice it says, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. They didn't repent where most of the miracles were done. So why is there this desire amongst the second blessing crowd, the new apostolic reformation movement, and those in the charismatic circles that say, if Christians would just stop being a bunch of dunderheads, be filled by the spirit and start doing miracles, well, then certainly we're going to have a revival. Well, that didn't happen when Jesus was doing the miracles. When he did most of them, they would not repent. In fact, you go to the book of Revelation. In the sixth seal, even the unregenerate realize miraculously that what they're seeing is the very wrath of God. And yet they won't repent. They need a different kind of miracle. That's what I'm going to show you. Verse 21, notice he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Dear ones, notice where is Chorazin and Bethsaida? That's on the Sea of Galilee. They're the ones who saw the miracles. And Jesus is saying to them, hey, if Tyre and Sidon had seen what you've seen, they would have repented. You know, when Jesus says that, that's a big insult. Those are fighting words. Why? Because Tyre and Sidon is in the area of the prototypical enemies of Israel. It's in the area of the Philistines. What Jesus is saying, hey, even the Philistines would have gotten it if they would have seen your miracles. It's like telling a Packer fan, hey, even the Viking fans would get it if we showed them that. That's the kind of insult he's giving, or vice versa, right, depending on which you are. That's the idea. So, dear ones, the point is, being amazed at miracles does not necessarily lead to saving faith. What you and I have to realize is what matters is believing the word, not simply standing amazed. Let me show you again one verse more. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew eleven twenty-two. I couldn't fit it all on the screen. Again, in heaven, our PowerPoint will be bigger. Turn your Bibles to Matthew eleven twenty-two. And I want to prove that the idea of having more miracles just makes you more culpable. Matthew eleven twenty two. Notice Jesus says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So let's look on the screen. It's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Why? Because Chorazin and Bethsaida had more miracles. And all they did was stand amazed. They didn't believe. They were merely astonished. Dear ones, that's why Jesus didn't do more miracles in his hometown synagogue. Because in so doing, all he would have been doing is heaping culpability upon them because they couldn't handle the truth. What all of this shows us is that the ultimate miracle that we need is regeneration by the Holy Spirit who, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, enables us to believe in Jesus Christ so that we don't simply stand amazed at the miracles, but we actually, for the first time, will believe in the very words of Christ, that we will believe in Jesus Christ, that we will trust him. That's what we need, not simply amazement, but the miracle of regeneration. Now, let me come to my last point. I believe that one of Matthew's intentions even in this opening summary that he gives us. Remember, there's five of these summaries throughout the book of Matthew. I believe one of his intentions is to show us that Jesus has the authority as the prophet like Moses and also that of the Messiah. Let me build the case first. Some of you may not realize that Moses himself had predicted his successor that would come after him would be a prophet. Notice what he said here. We'll read Deuteronomy 18.15 first. Here's what Moses said. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Now, notice Moses claimed that God would raise up for him a prophet like himself. Now, notice that phrase, a prophet like me. I think that's significant. Why? Because as it says in Deuteronomy 34.10, there had never arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses that God spoke face to face with. Now, when I say that, realize there's no contradiction 
Last week, we learned that no one can see the face of God and live. In other words, see God in his glory and his essence. The point of Deuteronomy 34.10 is that no one was given the revelation, the law, and the role of the mediator of the old covenant like Moses was. No one had that experience of being a lawgiver like Moses. And so in some sense, I think this shows us that we should also be looking for a prophet who is a mediator of another covenant. And further corroboration that this is in fact true, that this is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Certainly there are going to be other prophets before Christ, but that Christ is going to be the prophet par excellence. The one that Moses ultimately is pointing to is notice the phrase in bold, you shall listen to him. Now, if you're a note taker, jot this down. Write down Matthew 17, 5. Because in Matthew 17, 5, you're going to see that same phrase again, listen to him. Remember, Matthew 17, 5 will be in the transfiguration. Jesus is up on a mountain, and he's transfigured before his disciples. It is a foreshadowing of the parousia, the return of Christ in his glory. And remember, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he adds, listen to him. And the citation of listen to him is to show us that he's the prophet that Moses had foretold of. That's the idea. Now, notice verse 18. Now we have the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. If you won't listen and heed the words of this coming prophet, God is going to require of you. Remember, brothers and sisters, according to Hebrews 3.1, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the original sent one. That's what the apostolos means, one who is sent with the very authority of the one who sent him. Jesus then sends his apostles into the world. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me. Who does not receive you doesn't receive me. So think of the logic. If you reject the apostolic word, you're rejecting Christ. If you're rejecting Christ, you're rejecting the one who sent him. Brothers and sisters, clearly the authority that Jesus showed was a demonstration that he was this long-awaited prophet. Again, let's remind ourselves the recapitulation of Moses. Let me do it one more time. Isn't it interesting? Matthew records five major discourses. How many books did Moses write? Five. Some scholars think that they may be significant. If that's all we had, that's not a huge parallel, but it's something. But again, Moses comes out of Egypt in an exodus. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has an exodus out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus has a baptism. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, just like Israel, goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus, again, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, just like Moses, he goes with the people to the mountain. And he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, five 
times. Five times he says, truly, I say to you, demonstrating that he is, in fact, the mediator of the new covenant, the spokesman for God, that if we won't listen to him, it will be required of us. Now, the final point, of course, is this authority is showing not just that he's a prophet, the prophet that Moses had foretold of, but that he's the long-awaited Messiah. Remember today in Matthew 7, 29, I mentioned that the crowds, even though they were unbelievers, they saw Jesus as teaching as one having authority. The term authority there, exousia, is a term, ironically, that we will see again, or I should say we saw earlier in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it occurs three times. Let me set the stage with you. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of all of the successive kingdoms that would come about before the messianic kingdom would be established forever. And so he reveals this to Belshazzar. The first kingdom would be that of a lion like Babylon. In fact, he just states that it's Babylon. The second kingdom would be the Medo-Persian kingdom, symbolized by the bear. The third kingdom is going to be a leopard, which is Greece. But then after that, there would be a fourth kingdom that was terrifyingly strong. That was the Roman Empire. But from that empire, there would be ten horns. And those ten horns are ten kingdoms, as we see later in Revelation 17, that give their allegiance to the Antichrist. And right after that kingdom, in in Daniel chapter 7, you see a scene where the Son of Man comes to the throne in Daniel 7.13. Why is that phrase, Son of Man, so important in Daniel 7.13? Because it is the favorite self-designation by Jesus. He calls himself the Son of Man more than any other title. Why? Because he's linking himself to the Messiah of Daniel 7. And right after that, then, we see in Daniel 7.14 that his kingdom is going to be forever. It says, and to him, that's Jesus, that's the Messiah, written some 500 years in advance. It says, and to him was given, in the Septuagint, it's exousia, it's authority. To him was given authority, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His authority is an everlasting authority which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Dear ones, even the unregenerate were perceiving in the teachings that were so profound that this was a man who was teaching with authority. And all of that is driving us to find that Jesus of Nazareth really is the one who is the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. It's interesting to note that you and I talked about the authority of Jesus in Matthew 7 today at the end of the first discourse At the very end of the book, what does it say? And as he gives, Jesus does his great commission. Matthew 28, 18, it says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is certainly the long-awaited Messiah. We should be those who trust in him. It will never be sufficient to merely stand amazed at his miracles We must be those who truly come to faith in him. This Jesus is the one who commands every single person in Mark 1.15 to repent and to believe the gospel. What does it mean to repent? I like to think of repentance and faith as two sides of the same salvific coin. If you're repenting, 
You're turning from unbelief and you're turning to saving faith. You're turning from idolatry and you're turning to God. So if you'll repent and turn from anything that you've trusted outside of Christ alone and come to faith in Jesus Christ, you'll have the forgiveness of sins. Why Christ? Because it's this Jesus who is the second person of the Trinity, who existed as God and with God from all eternity, but at a point in time in history humbled himself and he became a man through the virgin birth. And he lived the perfect life that none of us could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But this Jesus didn't simply live the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took upon himself on the cross the full measure of God's wrath, and he paid it off. And the proof of this is seen by the fact that on the third day, after his bodily death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This Jesus ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring wrath and judgment upon his enemies, but a glorious kingdom that we're reading about in Daniel 7 to his people. What must we do? We can't simply stand amazed. We must believe. Believe in the one who has all authority, the Messiah of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that in your word you show us that Jesus has all authority, that he is the long-awaited prophet that Moses had foretold of, and that he is the Messiah of Daniel 7 that has the glorious kingdom. We do pray, Heavenly Father, in the weeks and the months and years ahead that we would live like it, that we would live lives for the kingdom, trusting in the promises that the best is yet to come, and that we would be those who forsake the sins that so easily entangle us, we pray, Heavenly Father, for our loved ones, friends, family, co-workers that don't know you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us opportunity, give us boldness, Lord, to proclaim the gospel to them that they might be saved. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would regenerate their heart so they would not simply stand amazed, but they would really believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, the one with all authority. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.